Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You guys, please welcome to the stage, Emily Heller! Emily Heller is an Emmy-nominated comedy writer and stand-up comedian based in Los Angeles, California. These days, Heller primarily writes for HBO's darkly comic Bill Hader drama series, Barry, which is currently in production for the follow-up to its critically acclaimed and award-winning debut season. She has also worked in writer's rooms for most of America's largest networks and is the co-host of the funny podcast Baby Geniuses. Heller has also released two wonderfully clever and astute live stand-up albums, including her hilarious 2018 release, Pasta, which is out now via Kill Rockstars. Emily and I caught up just ahead of American Thanksgiving for a wide-ranging talk about her upbringing in California, how and why she got into comedy, her love of music, Weird Al Yankovic and Godspeed You Black Emperor, empowerment and punk, working with Bill Hader and Alec Berg on Barry, the themes and ideas on pasta, and much more. With the support of listeners like you who subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly pledges at patreon.com slash creative control, plus in-kind support from CFRU 93.3 FM, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, this is the 447th and one of my all-time favorite episodes of Creative Control featuring the boldly confident and ingenious Emily Heller with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, you guys. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so great. It's so great to be here in Portland. I live in L.A., so it's nice to finally be in a part of the country whose climate reflects how I feel about the country. (laughs) It just feels so much more appropriate to be here. It's fucking depressing as hell. (laughs) I don't know if you can tell from my glasses or everything about me, but I'm not thrilled with the president right now. (laughs) Imagine if I looked like this and I was stoked. What would my deal be? (laughs) What an interesting person that would make me. 
I wish I was that interesting. I'm not. I'm just another sad, boring liberal. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Hello. It's good. It's great to hear your Canadian brogue. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. It's nice to hear your American brogue, if I might say. Yeah. Uh, yes. Do, uh, <laughs> do I sound Californian? I've heard that I do. <laughs> you do sound maybe a little. I, I I I don't speak to as many Californians as maybe I should. What what do you? How do you distinguish the sound of a Californian's voice? I guess there's a drawl of some kind, laid back. Yeah. I've heard it's very like sort of a lazy speech pattern, just sort of like we kind of trail off or we're like sort of, I don't know. Now I feel like I've called attention to it and no one's going to be able to <laughs> listen to this interview thinking about anything else. <laughs> are you actually, are you, you're there now, aren't you? Where, where are you? Where in the world are I you? I am. Yeah, I live, in, I live in LA and I'm, I'm from California. So. Oh, you're from there originally. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm from the Bay Area. Now, I, as we're speaking, I have to ask, I mean, your state is overrun by these uh, terribly tragic and devastating wildfires. How are you doing there? Yeah, it's really sad and scary. Um, I'm, I'm safe. I'm doing okay. We've got HEPA filters running in my house. Um, but uh, yeah, the air quality is bad. I'm supposed to go home to the Bay Area next week for Thanksgiving, and it's the air quality there is even worse. So luckily, I... You know, I'm safe and everyone I know is safe, but it's definitely super devastating. Yeah, I'm trying to make sense of the news on it because they'll say a county name. I don't know California well enough, but it sounds like they'll say Los Angeles County. I'm like, Los Angeles County sounds like Los Angeles to me. Does everyone I know in California <laughs> have to leave? And you're saying yeah. that you're, you haven't been told you have to leave. No, no. Los Angeles County is really big. Um, and so... I think I'm separated from the fires by an actual, by the LA river. Oh, I so see. Yeah. yeah. So, but who knows? I mean, things could change things. I, hopefully they, they get better. Um, but yeah, it is, I know, uh, there are definitely a lot of, um, parts of LA that are not safe, but yeah, LA is yeah. very big. Well, you're a lifelong Californian. I, I think of California as this idyllic place. I, I read, uh, the grapes of wrath. That made it seem like it was a cool place to go, but <laughs> but but at the same time, uh, I also think of it as a place that is prone to natural disasters, earthquakes. Now the fires, thing, mudslides, all sorts of things. Did you grow yeah. up? Did you grow up with that sort of sense? Like the ground beneath me is unsafe. It's not. This is not necessarily a safe place. But at the same time, ah, what are you gonna do? Like, did you have that mix? Um, you know, I probably should have, um, <laughs> I was, and I think that like, uh, the, I was four years old when the 89 earthquake hit San Francisco and my memory of that was, I thought it was very fun. Um, very fun. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I did not understand the danger of it. And so that has maybe influenced the way I feel about, uh, how likely it is that bad things are going to happen to me. <laughs> uh, I, I have fully lulled myself into a false sense of security um, with that. But uh, it's starting to get scarier for sure. <laughs> okay. Well, you're an adult now. You're not four years old anymore. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm yeah. an adult now. And, and you know, I'm the youngest of, of three siblings. And my older siblings were terrified of the earthquake and are still terrified of earthquakes. And I just 
for some reason, uh, didn't learn that lesson, even though I should have. Yeah. Okay. Well, in your work, you you often talk about your life and and what it's been like for you to live as a human person. Uh, I don't know. I don't. (laughs) You make it sound like I'm I'm an alien who is doing a long con to try and pass. I felt like I felt like I sounded more like an alien uh, than you did. (laughs) You are a human specimen, and that's what I know of you. You use words and language, and air comes out of you or something. I don't know. Anyway, no. uh, What I was going to say is I don't know a whole ton about your upbringing and and how you've gotten. Uh, to where you are right now. And so I I guess just even briefly, whatever you're willing to divulge, this isn't some sort of border crossing interrogation. What was your, (laughs) beyond the 89 earthquake, what was your upbringing like? Did you have a good time? I had a great time being brought up. Um, Yeah, my parents are um, super supportive of my creative efforts at, you know, and my siblings too. My, my brother's a musician, my sister's a, a film director and uh, our mom is an art teacher. And so we all grew up sort of doing a ton of art as a kid, as kids and, you know, being encouraged to perform and to express ourselves. So um, I am, you know, I think there's this sort of stereotype about comedians that like, we're all disappointing our parents, but my parents like wanted wanted to come to open mics when I started doing open mics. So I had, I think, probably too much encouragement as a kid, if anything. It's, it's fascinating for me as I, I'm I'm quite a bit older than you, maybe. I don't know. I'm 40. So I, I end up talking to younger people on my show because everyone's younger than me because I'm 40. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I used to think this. I, I hear what you're saying because I, it used to be my generation was always rebelling against something. Their parents, yeah. in particular, you were just fighting. A lot of my friends, we were kind of just like resisting our parents' impulse to go get straight jobs and be, you know, you know, respectable members of society. But I am running into this more and more, totally supportive, arts-oriented, creative parents. I mean, that's remarkable. Do you realize how remarkable your upbringing is? Yeah, I do. And I think, honestly, part of it is, is that that was my parents' way of rebelling against their parents was, you know, they weren't given that encouragement and they, you know, wanted it. And so they, they, they made sure that they... I think they wanted to do things differently than their parents did with them. Um, and mm. so, yeah, I, I totally get that that is like unusual and very, very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so the first impulses you had, like creative impulses, how did you express yourself? I mean, we know you as a comedian, as a Emmy-nominated writer and, and, and whatnot at this point. I mean, that's what everyone knows when they hear Emily Heller, <laughs> Emmy-nominated comedic person. But do you remember? I just you- I I try and uh, mention that as much as possible so that it is the first thing people think of. <laughs> it's, it's almost part of your name, Emily. People would mistake it yeah. all the time. Is that Emmy exactly. Howard? Yeah, <laughs> Emmy winner. Yeah. No. Uh, do you remember what you first? You know what first grabbed your attention as a as a wannabe, if you will, creative person? Like what what were you aspiring to be when you first uh, expressed yourself? I mean, I definitely always wanted to perform when I was a little kid there's a famous story in our family of like I was in like some sort of kindergarten show where we were all singing and at some point I started screaming because I didn't want anyone to be singing but me (laughs) um which is you know probably a bad probably something I should be talking about in therapy. Um, but, uh, 
but I also, you know, I, I wrote a lot of like really, um, shitty pretentious poetry from a very young age even though I had nothing to say um but at at the same time I also was obsessed with like Weird Al and The Simpsons so like I really didn't know what it was I wanted to do I just knew that I wanted people to hear me okay there's a it's so funny that you bring up Weird Al because uh Weird Al is someone I admire deeply and I've had the chance to speak with him a couple of times. So once oh, on, man. Yeah, once on this show, actually. Well, he's a sweet guy. I actually emailed his... I did a sort of biographical profile on him, and he had a question. He didn't know why a, a band I knew might have booked him when they curated this festival in England where he'd never played before. And, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, there's a band from... Mon- Do you know the band from Montreal, Godspeed, You Black Emperor? Have yeah. You- yeah, yeah. So they curated a, uh, that festival that used to take place in England, All Tomorrow's Parties, and they asked Weird Al to play. And everyone was like, what? Why would Godspeed you Black Emperor <laughs> want Weird Al? So I'm talking to him and he said, yeah, I, I never got a chance to ask them. But those that sh- those shows, like which only happened, I guess, what, 10 years ago, first time I've ever played Europe, first time I'd ever played, uh, you know, in- England. So because of Godspeed you Black Emperor... Weird Al played England, which I thought was odd. So I emailed his manager because I know the Godspeed people. And I said, hey, can you tell me what's up? And Weird Al got the email and wrote to me. He wrote, you know, when there's dream scenarios where you're like one of your heroes suddenly contacts you. I had that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's amazing. And I I didn't mean to tell. And he's such a nice person. Yes. So like he's so exactly what you hope he's going to be. Yeah, he was super sweet. And he he was very touched that I reached out to them and and for the reasoning. But the reason I bring it up is because there's a moment on your new album, Pasta, which I haven't had a chance to tell you is wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I've I've been listening to it a, a lot. I've made my wife listen. I didn't make her, but I put it on, <laughs> and we we were enjoying it and laughing together. And anyway, there's a moment on Pasta where you sing a parody, and mm-hmm. I, I just think it's and it reminded me. I'm like, how am I going to broach this with Emily? Like, because I don't want to. I don't want to give anything away to people. I want them to hear it. But it is Weird Al esque. Is that fair? Oh, to say? that is a very very kind compliment. <laughs> Would you agree that maybe Weird Al is somewhere swimming in the inspiration behind your the parody excerpt song that you present on Pasta? <laughs> I would love if that were true. <laughs> I wonder. I honestly wonder if because the the bit that you're talking about, um, it's it's a joke about one of those you know those songs that you sing yourself alone at home um or to the person that you live with which is something that I do all the time and part of me wonders if that impulse came from listening to so much Weird Al as a kid so I I don't know if it's a total coincidence that that's how that ended up on the album yeah you take a uh, you take a familiar melody or the tune and you just apply your own nonsense lyrics kind of thing (laughs) yeah exactly yeah which is what he's made a rather successful career of doing yeah totally um I I don't know you know I wasn't thinking about Weird Al when okay. I when okay. I wrote that bit, um, but now I definitely am. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't um, mean to. I hope I haven't. Well, no, it doesn't sound like I ruined it for you at all. Maybe it's not opened at it all. up. I not just in any way. <laughs> that's what I heard, and I and that's what I thought as I was uh, coming up uh, pre- preparing for our talk today. I was like, "What is it? It reminds me of something." I mean, obviously, I know what the tune is, but like, just the approach. Anyway, I yeah. The, so 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 you're expressing yourself as a young person. Was music? You're on. A, you're also on a very uh, prominent. 
music label, uh, which uh, has been releasing fine comedy records in recent years, Kill Rockstars. Was, yeah. Was music ever going to be in your future? Were you interested in music, pursuing it? Oh, yeah. I was super interested in music for a while. I like I say I, you know, I played some instruments growing up, like I played cello for a few years and then I quit it. And then I did a lot of singing. I was in um, the chorus at my school. And uh, then, you know, in high school, I got more into like, you know, like punk music and like emo music. And I like started a band with my friend Lewis and we played a bunch of music together. And um you know, it's something that I've always sort of come back to in some way or another. I think it satisfies something in me that's important. I don't think I ever thought that that was going to be my career. Okay. Um, I don't think I knew what my career was going to be at any point. Even like a, it took me doing stand up for a couple of years before I even thought to think about it as my <laughs> career. <laughs> like I wanted to know I was good at it and had a shot at it before I even gave myself permission to think about pursuing it. Cause I know it's such a hard path for most people. Um, but so, but music is definitely something that I, I hope I never stop doing music in some form. Like I wrote a song like a couple weeks ago <laughs> and oh. no one will hear it, but I like doing it from time to time. Every so often that you have an idea where you're like, this isn't a joke. This isn't a TV show. I think this is a song. <laughs> this is a song and it, yeah. it just needs to be a song. So do you still play instruments? No, I never got I'm, I I don't have the patience to get really good at any instrument, I don't think. Mm. I'm pretty upset. I was pretty upset to find out as an adult that like cuz I played cello from age I think 7 to 9 and then I quit because I thought my teacher was mean. And um my sister told me she was like, "Yeah, everyone was really upset when you quit cello cuz you were really good." Oh. And I was like, "Why did they let me quit?" Yeah. There's <laughs> about it isn't it weird when you get mad at your parents for not teaching you how to do a thing like that i mean it's not weird it makes sense like <laughs> but yeah it, it is weird i i do think that it's like i thought that i was not a teenager anymore but every so often i'll learn a new thing as an adult and instead of thinking like oh wow cool i learned a new thing i think why didn't my parents teach me that <laughs> <laughs> and that's the wrong impulse they did their best they did their best they probably yeah. tried and then, then you you walked away and and you don't remember that part <laughs> that's that's what i go through now i'm like why didn't my dad teach me how to do that and then i'll go into my subconscious i'm like oh yeah he did he did try to teach me that <laughs> And I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to go outside. So I left. I like, and then he was like, fine, up, go. I'm trying to teach you a life skill. Come back to me in 20 years and complain, I guess. Anyway, so what actually prompted the – that you mentioned that it's a hard road, comedy. You, yeah. You seem to – in your telling of this story, you seem to uh, maybe even already know that that was going to be difficult. What prompted you to get over that sort of fearless uh, – or fear, rather, and get into get into comedy? Um. Well, I – you know, I took a stand-up comedy class at col in college. I went to UC Santa Cruz, and um, they offered one. Um, and I took it not thinking like, "Here I go on my career path," because I was an art history major. Uh -huh. um, but I I knew I had had I had had friends who had taken the class and thought it was fun, and I had also heard that not a lot of women took the class and that made me really mad. Mm. Um, mm. And I was like, oh, I'm going to take that class. I'm going to show everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, most of the people taking that class, I think were like 
some kind of science major who were trying to satisfy an arts prereq. Um, oh, and... Sure. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. But I mean, that's yeah. a, that sounds like an appealing elective, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it was like a pretty easy class. And most of the people in it just told Dane Cook jokes uh-huh. and hoped that the professor wouldn't know. Um, and but I took it really seriously. And I put a lot of time and effort into my act. And I ended up getting an A plus in the class, which is the only A plus I ever got in college <laughs> or probably any class I've ever taken in my entire life. And Congrat- kinda... Congratulations in retro. I mean, it's a little belated, I guess, but congratulations. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah. I don't know if I earned an A plus, but I think it was one of those classes where pretty much everyone got an A. Oh. So if someone was actually good, they wanted to like, I think that the professor was trying to say like, hey, uh, this isn't just the automatic A I give everyone. This is I want to, you know, encourage you. And so someone else in that class who she decided to start doing open mics in San Francisco and she wanted me to go with her. And I, I started going and, um, I, you know, there was a lot of, there were a lot of people encouraging me along the way to keep doing it. Um, as much as I was sort of in denial about how much I wanted to pursue comedy. Um, there were enough people telling me like, Hey, no, you should keep doing this that I I did. And I moved to San Francisco and I, kept doing comedy as in my mind a hobby but I also got a job working at Rooftop Comedy which is like a comedy startup website and so oh, I was okay. like I'm yeah. spending all day and all night thinking about comedy if this isn't my career what is <laughs> um <laughs> right and uh you know my sister my sister had moved to New York a few years earlier because her husband uh, got a job writing for Saturday Night Live. Oh wow! And um, and my sister was uh, at that point a theater actor, and that was a great place for her to be too. But so I knew that if I moved to New York, that I would have a place to land and um, some connections there. And I, I visited New York a bunch of times and did stand up there. And um, I was like, oh okay, I think that if I don't try this now, I'm not going to. So after three years of doing stand-up in San Francisco and asking a lot of people for a lot of free advice, I was like, I'm going to go for it. If I don't, if I don't make it by the time I'm 30, I'm going to quit. Right. You're you're being pragmatic in some ways. Yeah. And I'm not saying that like, if you don't make it by 30, you should quit. I'm just saying I didn't want to keep doing it after that because it wasn't one of those things where I was like, I am comedy or bust do or die i this is the thing i need to do for me i was like i would be so so lucky if i could have a life where i do comedy for a living and if that doesn't happen i'm not going to take it too hard i'm just gonna find something else to do with my life that's that's totally amazing like you had a (laughs) very realistic perspective on it i i think so i mean (laughs) the you know i i hope that that's what comes across and not like you know it's weird telling people that because i do know so many people who are like this is my dream this is the thing i wanted to do and i I don't think i've ever really thought about it like oh this is the thing that i have to do or i won't be happy i've kind of thought about it like holy cow i would just be really lucky if i got to do that and i don't expect that I deserve to have that kind of life. And then I've ended up having a pretty easy path compared to a lot of other people. And that's very unfair. (laughs) There's a lot going on in what you've just said that I think might relate to your interest or uh, impulse to not take something you care about too seriously. And I don't mean to make this a 
uh, an amateur hour psychology session. Oh, but, please. This is the, that's the only kind of conversation I like having. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a sense from me, from your work, where you talk about how I'm not getting married, uh, but my boyfriend and I are going to live for live together forever. I almost said you were going to live forever, which was getting into some warlock witch stuff there. But anyway, yeah. no, you, you, you have this thing where and you, you were just saying like you took this comedy elective and you were just like almost as a lark. You know, I'm an art history major. I'm not going to take this seriously. Then you get an A plus. You're still not. Oh, whatever. They gave everyone an A plus. You have a sense of deflection there, I think, that I find fascinating. It seems to run through your work and through the story you just told, and I find that interesting. <laughs> What's interesting to me, too, is I'm like, I'm not a humble person. I'm not like, uh, oh, I don't deserve anything good. I don't think. It's more that I'm just like, I like to think critically and try not to get invested in some kind of outcome i think i because i don't believe in like fairy tales or things like that that like you know i and i think part of it is huh. just sort of like i have an anti-authoritarian streak so i try and just sort of challenge ideas that are given to me just naturally and so the idea of like oh i'm gonna try and be a star like i just i'm so afraid of being a cliche i think that that's where a lot of those ideas come from it's not humility it's just like i don't want to be caught in a delusion. <laughs> sure, but I mean, maybe within that you have a mistrust. This is going to sound way heavier than I mean it to sound, but yeah. maybe a mistrust of like emotion, like emotional engagement. Like you, you don't want to be let down by a thing emotionally uh, by throwing all your passion behind it. You want to look at it almost analytically, a little bit coldly. I'm 30 or nothing. If, if I'm not <laughs> doing this by 30, I'm out. That's a number. That's a figure. That's a cold yeah. figure that I can point to. And then I don't have my heart broken in the end. I mean, is that yeah. is it protection? Self protection? I I think I think it probably is. I mean, I I have anxiety. Um mm -hmm. like I've had uh I, I don't want to say I suffer from anxiety because I don't suffer super hard from it, but I have you know, I am in therapy for it. I do have some emergency medication for it. I have suffered from anxiety attacks in the past yeah. and I am an anxious thinker. So the way I think about the world is like what could possibly go wrong, but not in the like hypothetical, let's go for it way. I I think, okay, what could possibly go wrong? Let's make a list. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that is how I sort of cope with the world emotionally. I think like, what's the worst case scenario? And I'm going to emotionally prepare for that yeah. so that if it happens, I'm ready. And if it doesn't happen, I'm also fine. I, I also suffer from anxiety. It's a recent phenomenon. About a year ago, my, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And um, she... Uh, that, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, well, no. And I don't, I don't mean to make this about me or too personal or anything like that. But um, I, what I was going to say is... Um, and by the way, so she uh, went through uh, surgeries and um, radiation and chemotherapy. And uh, just so people know... Uh, she just had like a, a mammogram and it was uh, clear. So just so you awesome. know, yeah, yeah, that's I, great. <laughs> it was, it was very touch and go there for a while. But what I was going to say is, so my mom was diagnosed and then I very selfishly, uh, <laughs> developed anxiety and I had to go to therapy and I had to figure, and, and what the therapist does is they try to figure out why you're anxious. Cause I was just exhibiting a lot of anxiety about health, which totally made sense. Cause my mom got sick. I have right. children. We've, we've never, you know, my no, my mom and I don't have children. That sounded weird. <laughs> <laughs> I have children with my wife, and uh, we've not had 
cancer in our family uh, that I was aware of. So that just made me think, oh, my God, what if I get cancer? And what if my kids get cancer? And then that just spiraled me out of control. And it's been a rough time for me. And um, and, and I appreciate that you on your record, on your records in your work, you, you talk very frankly about therapy. And that's a that's a relatively new development for for people like, let's say, you and me. Like, it's really out in the open now. Uh, people are very yeah. frank about it. I feel like it's a it's instructive. It's 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 a, it's meant to let other people know that that's an option for them. Is that maybe why you beyond needing to express yourself and it's a real thing that's going on in your life? Do you feel sort of maybe subtly that you're trying to let your audience know, people who hear you know that that's an option for them that maybe if they're going through struggles like this happened to me and I'm dealing with it this way, do you, do yeah. you, do you view it that oh. way? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I disagree with is the subtlety part. I am not subtle <laughs> about it. I fully, right. I, I talk about therapy by saying everyone should go to therapy. That's true, you do. Yeah. I, I argue pretty hard for it. But I do think that um, something that I have been trying to do on stage, whether I'm successful or not, it, you know, the, the longer I do stand up, the more I understand about, you know, my voice, who I am, what makes me funny or what makes people want to listen to me. And I think one thing that um, I've come to learn about myself as I relate to the world is that like, I don't embarrass easily. There are a lot of things that embarrass other people to talk about that really, really do not, I do not experience shame and I don't know why. And I think that one way I can sort of weaponize that for good is to talk about the things that other people might not feel comfortable talking about in a way that I don't know. Some some people might argue that me talking about it stigmatizes it because then you're associated with me and things I do. But <laughs> I think that I, I I think it's really important to talk sort of like in a you know if there's a thing that I'm not ashamed of, like I'm gonna talk about it like I'm not ashamed of it. And if that makes other people feel more comfortable with it, I feel. I would feel so happy if that was the outcome. Um, yeah, to paraphrase a, a Patton Oswalt uh, special, which I don't know if this term comes from somewhere else. It probably does, and I'm I'm not nerdy enough to know. But <laughs> your weakness is strong, basically, I feel like. You, yeah. you, you are drawing from the, the issues you're having but uh, in terms of anxiety, but you are a very... What, I, what comes across in your work to me is a lot of confidence, a lot of... Um, like someone who knows themselves... You know what shit you're going to put up with and what you're not going to put up with in life, not just in relationships. Like you talk about all manner of things on on your most recent album. And it's just clear to me that you know what you're willing to deal with and what you're willing to, you know, just brush aside. It's not for you. That takes work, doesn't it? To kind of know yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. That's absolutely what I hope people walk away with. And yeah, it does take work. And I feel like I'm like, yeah, I've done the work to sort of know myself and to to put up boundaries and to talk about them. And so I, I, I do think that that's something that I try to put across in my comedy. I think when earlier in my career, like I've always been a very confident person. And I think earlier in my career, I would sort of tell jokes that could be qualified more as like self-deprecating. Sure. And there was something about that that was like a little dishonest to me. I was like, just because I'm talking about being a slob doesn't mean I don't like myself. I actually think that that's one of my better qualities. So why am I, why am I making jokes at my own expense so that the audience can kind of understand? It felt like I was agreeing to what the audience wanted me to feel about myself, which was bad. And yeah. I, I just decided to stop doing that. 
because yeah. it's not honest and it's not it's not how I feel. I think for anyone looking for a real clear example of of, of what you're talking about, might want to listen to your bit on pasta about uh, dealing with a physical trainer, which I found <clears throat> entertainingly honest. Like I just was like that. That's amazing. Like just and I again. I want people to listen to the thing, so I don't want to ask you too many questions about it. But I just, I think that's a real, would you agree? That's a pretty good example of. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And that was a bit that sort of took a lot of work to get to the point where it is, where it does sound like that. Cause there yeah. were, there were versions of the joke that I told when I was sort of working it out. And I could tell that I had failed when people would come up to me after the show and be like, just so you know, I think you're beautiful. Yeah, right. And I would be like, I am telling this joke wrong if that is your reaction. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah. So I basically like kept tweaking it until no one said that to me after a show. Yeah. That- and and it, it got to the point where I have to say on stage, I know I'm beautiful, <laughs> <laughs> which is like not something I ever thought would be a thing I would say in a stand-up comedy show. But. <laughs> well, I want to, in keeping with what we were talking about in terms of your confidence, in terms of your self-awareness, uh, you said something about that comedy class uh, that I found fascinating, which was that no women were taking the class and that bothered you. There's a, th- that empowerment at that age, like when you're a college student, that that's that's interesting to me as well, that you knew like that made you angry. It wasn't just like, well, I guess that's not for me or whatever. I'm curious where that streak comes from. You mentioned punk rock and some other, and your parents seem very supportive. So I kind of have a sense of where your uh, confidence maybe comes from you know, uh, on <laughs> yeah. some, like a little bit, but that yeah. empowerment, that sense of like, this isn't right. That indignation, I suppose. Uh, and, and, you know, you almost took that class uh, to take a stand. No, no pun intended because you ended up in stand-up comedy. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, can you take us back to that point where you were like, this is wrong and I'm going to do something about it? Um, You know, one thing that comes to mind is when I was a kid, my mom subscribed me to this feminist magazine for young girls called New Moon. Oh, um, it was like a very sort of hippy dippy, like empowerment, very nineties magazine for like preteen girls. And I devoured it. And there was a section in that magazine called how aggravating. And it was like, it, you know, how in like YM magazine, they would be like, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Write in with your embarrassing stories, uh-huh. um, yeah, sure. and we'll all laugh about it. The 
in this magazine, it was like, write in with stories about things that have made you mad. And very often, the ones that they would print would be stories about some sort of like overt or covert sexism. Mm -hmm. And it really (laughs) inspired me to like... (laughs) Be like, oh, yeah, I have a right to be mad about stuff that's not fair. Yeah. And I think I've always felt that way about it. But it really, you know, I <laughs> I, I, sort of in some ways fantasized about getting in that section. There's something that's probably dangerously good feeling about righteous anger. And I think from an early age, I learned that like, oh, yeah, there's no shortage of sexism in the world to be mad at. And um you know, I went to UC Santa Cruz, which is also an extremely liberal school, and all of my friends were like feminist studies majors and like, you know, uh, learning how to be social workers. And, uh, you know, so that was sort of the lens that I've always had going into comedy. Huh. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I had also, with the comedy thing specifically, I used to work at this performing arts camp for kids and... W- one thing that came up a lot there, because it was also very social justice minded people working there and who had gone there as campers was that like, we noticed that there was some sort of unfairness around the way women were seen when it came to being funny. It was sort of the only way in which that sexism manifested in a place like that was they were like, oh, I don't think women are seen as funny here. And why is that? And I would watch little kids like hear a joke that a woman said and not laugh at it and then hear a man say not a joke and laugh. And it was, I realized like, oh, so much of what you think is funny has to do with who you expect to be telling a joke. Right. Yeah. Right. I see. Okay. So that that was a formative thing for you. You seem to be someone, I'm skipping ahead now maybe to the current day, but like you seem like someone who needs to make a difference. And I, I know everyone wants to make a difference on some level, in their existence but like i've kind of come to terms with that myself like for whatever reason and i don't know that it's working (laughs) but i I have this compulsion to try to make a a, some sort of a difference in maybe other people's lives and i feel like that's emanates from you and your work like you you feel like beyond being like you were when you were a kid the only person that was allowed to sing uh you, yeah. <laughs> you actually it's it's a very uh it, it's a selfless sort of pursuit on some level even if you know you're per, you know what I'm trying to say like obviously you uh, Yeah, I think I do. And I think you know what's interesting is it's interesting that you say that you also suffer from anxiety too because I think part of the impulse to try and make a difference comes from like I want to sleep at night. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I it's need hard to, enough, yeah, It's I hard need, enough to sleep at night, but <laughs> I need to make something every day and create something every day or have a conversation like this one every day to feel okay about myself and that's <laughs> that's strange on some level like that's It's strange. Yeah. I I don't I try not to give myself too much credit for that impulse because really what's happened is I've found a way to live a life that combines that very basic impulse I had as a kid, which was like, I need to be the only one talking (laughs) with, with a sense that like, I want to make sure that I'm living my life right. I'm always worried that I'm doing something wrong or I'm living my life wrong or things like that. And I think that like, the more that you try to think about like, whether what you're putting out into the world is good, the 
easier it becomes to feel okay with the just choices you've made. Are you, and are, yeah. I, I constantly think I should be quitting comedy and devoting my life to something that is way more selfless than what it is that I do. But, <laughs> but you, you mentioned that people come up to you and they make comments, maybe misinterpreting a joke. Are you starting to get a sense uh, as you've been doing? How long, so what are we talking about here? How long have you actually been in comedy then? It's been over it, over a decade? I think, I think it's been about a decade. Yeah. Like my... The very first time I performed stand-up, which was, I would say, the final class performance of that yeah. <laughs> of that stand-up stand-up class, was I think December of two thousand and six. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, okay. And then I I moved to San Francisco about a year and a half later, so like summer of two thousand and eight, and that's when I started doing comedy in a real way. So yeah, it's been over a, a, a little over 10 years. Right. And so, um, so yeah, I've been doing it for a while. <laughs> You've been doing it for a while. So I'm at a stage where, uh, I just sort of, like I say, I try to do something every day and a lot of it goes out into the world and I'm getting to the point now where younger people are asking me questions about it, about your practice, about, Oh yeah. And, and so I wonder like, do you get the sense now because of your, uh, comedy, because of, your uh, attitude, your st- the stances you've taken, are you seeing that as an inspiration to, and I don't, you know, this can be hard to talk about because you don't want to sound full of yourself. Maybe you do want to sound full of yourself. <laughs> are you seeing? <laughs> yeah, oh my God, you- <laughs> I, have, I have 800 opinions about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, sorry. I, I meant like, are you, beyond the people coming up to clarify your jokes, are you getting people saying, thank you, uh, this has inspired me to do something similar? I think so. Yeah. I mean, again, not to sound arrogant or anything, but like I have had comedians come up to me and tell me that my work has meant something to them, even if it was just like they saw me doing shows like as an MC at the San Francisco punchline back in the day. And, yeah. Um, you know, I think that uh, from the very beginning, I've been talking about feminism on stage and that was something that I didn't think was unusual, but I think at the time it was more unusual than I thought. And now that's not an unusual thing. And I know that part of that, at least in like the Bay Area comedy scene, has a little bit to do with me and the fact that I succeeded by talking about that stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people do people do write to me and ask me for advice or they come up to me in person and and tell me stuff like that. And I try and do the same thing for the people who have meant that to me as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it's not like a crazy number of people who, who do that, but it's enough to know that like, it's enough to encourage me to keep going. Yeah. I feel like even, even like when someone's asking you for that kind of assistance, you've touched them, you've, you have inspired them to contemplate something they want to do. And I, I, that, that's a real, I take it as a huge, not a, not even as a compliment. I, I that's part of why we put stuff out in the world. To, that difference making I'm talking about on some level, I think, is sort of there within our practices on some level. Not to put myself in your league, but I'm just saying, like people like us. Oh yeah, some totally. of us are thinking about that stuff, and and like this is going to impact someone. We're doing something that you know might actually help the world in some ways. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Now you you have gone from uh, uh, an egomaniacal comedian. No, I'm just kidding. You have gone from <laughs> this self-propelled person on some level. Like you you've made something for yourself as a stand-up comedian, and now you're 
well known for I mentioned you're an Emmy nominated writer. Uh, and Thank comedian. you. It was a really painful amount of time between the first time you mentioned it and this time. So <laughs> I'm trying to mention, I'm deeply relieved. <laughs> <laughs> but that notion of going from being kind of uh, a little bit lone wolfy to yeah. now having to work in a writer's room, how difficult or easy was that transition for you to collaborate with others? It was definitely harder than I thought it would be. I mean, it was easier than I thought it would be in some ways because collaborative TV writing is so much easier than trying to write TV on your own. But it was definitely an adjustment that I didn't expect that it was like, oh, right. I have spent so much time being in 100% complete control of every joke that comes out of my mouth to now working on someone else's idea, someone else's project and not having final say even if i know my joke is the best one yeah. it's not going in the script necessarily maybe yeah. it doesn't work best it's not and it's it's definitely frustrating to give that control up but at the same time i was in a you know i've a lot of times i'm the only stand up in the writers room and so i am actually the only person in that room who gets to leave and go tell jokes exactly the way I want them told. So in some ways it gives you an advantage in a writer's room to be like, we are all very funny, creative people, but as a standup, I get to go and have a place where I am in charge. And so it was tough, but it was also like, you know, I think in some ways easier for me than it was for other people because I had that outlet that's outside of the room. That's that's interesting on a couple of levels. Like, yeah, it's true. You you uh, you don't want it? Fine, I'll take it and I'll use it in my act. Or yeah. <laughs> but the, the the thing you said about it sometimes being the only stand up comedian in a writer's room that's is that normal? Is that like well, who are the other writers? Are they they all have their specialties? I guess, but you're the only comedian. That's fascinating to me. Well, I mean, that's not always true. There sure. have been a, a couple a couple shows I've worked on where it's been like, oh, there are a bunch of stand-ups in here. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but, uh, but the first job I had, I was, I think, one of maybe two stand-ups in the room. Um, and, you know, there were about like 10 or 11 people in there. And a lot of them were people who were like, they wanted to be TV writers. They worked their way up by um, working as assistants for agents or managers or, and then writers assistants and working their way in that way. Um, and so, and at first I was kind of like, wait a minute, why aren't you guys standups? You're all really funny. Like you could all be standups. And then I realized like, oh, this is um, a better life. <laughs> you wanted to have a stability and a family and um, a routine. And I get that. <laughs> right. Okay. So now uh, my understanding is are you, you're currently a writer on HBO's Barry. Is that correct? Yeah, we are. Um, they're shooting season two right now. So the writer's job is uh, is done. I'm on hiatus from that right now. But oh, okay. uh, But yeah. Okay. But yeah, I worked on season seasons one and two and hopefully season three. Okay. Oh great. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic show. It's and it is so funny. I mean it's it's so dark and strange and I can't think of too many shows like it to be honest. It's really it's it's been a good experience for you, I, I assume. Yeah, it's been great and thank you for saying that. I mean, um the creators of the show have such a strong vision for it and so it's one of those it's one of those shows where you know, when I first heard of it and read the pilot, I was like, how is this going to work? And it really is on the strength of like, you know, Bill Hader and Alec Berg's vision for it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting, challenging show to work on. It's unlike any other comedy I've ever worked on. Um, it's super, super thoughtful. And 
Um, you know, there are real consequences to everything that happens in every episode, which yeah. is something that I find really challenging to work on. And also, I'm really grateful to be able to work on something like that, because that's something that I like to watch, too. I don't know him. We've never spoken. I've never met him. But somehow, Barry makes me very happy for Bill Hader. I, I, I don't know how to explain yeah. it. Like, I'm a <laughs> well, huge, I think he's the funniest guy. Like, he's just so funny as a he's so funny, performer. Yeah. And, and to see him in this role and demonstrate this range, uh, I, I just, I didn't really know he had it. I didn't know he could. I mean, I guess he's made other films that are, yeah, that's true. I should have known. Yeah, like Skeleton Twins. <laughs> yeah. I remember watching Skeleton <laughs> Skeleton Twins and thinking like, oh, oh, he's a real actor. Yeah. Oh, um, and, but, but yeah, I think that you watching it and feeling happy for him makes absolute sense because it is so the thing he wants to be doing. Yeah. And it's so like, after spending so much time in the writer's room with him, I'm like, oh, he's like a he's like a, a true film nerd. Yeah. Like he wanted to be a filmmaker. He wanted to be a director. He wanted to like make serious, serious films. And, um, you know, through a variety of circumstances, he ended up being on SNL and being a comedian and I think that he's always had this in him and has just been sort of like waiting for the opportunity to to do something like this and so I think when you you can kind of see when you're watching it you're like oh this is someone doing the thing that they really want to do yeah and it's really it's fun to work on that with someone yeah no it's it's an incredible show and I know you can't uh you, you absolutely shouldn't say too much about what's coming up <laughs> uh, in the in the upcoming season, but at the same time, did anything about the process surprise you about where they took things? Again, please, for the sake of you and me, don't divulge too much. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, like, did anything? Were you like, oh wow, like wow? I did oh, not. Wow. <laughs> I did not think we were going this way. Um, I mean, I can talk about that in terms of season one. Oh, okay. Like, you know, if because season one is out and um, there was stuff that we did on season one where it was like, oh, oh, it, it, oh, it's that. Like, and yeah. Bill has talked about this in interviews too. And I guess spoiler alert if you haven't watched it, but the the, the really dark stuff that happens in episode seven, which is Barry kills his friend. Um, yeah. and uh that was something that we didn't know we were going to do but as but just because of the process of that show we talk about like what is the thing that he would realistically do in this situation and if it's something really dark we'll get there um that's yeah. that's what we'll end up doing um and for season 2 i'm trying to think if there's anything that really surprised me it's it's hard for it to surprise surprise me because we talk about everything so so much before anything gets written and we talk about where we want the characters to end up what the theme of the season is going to be like what we want the journey of the characters to be struggling with and we go back and forth on that stuff a lot it changes a lot before it gets written it changes a lot after it gets written there's stuff that came out honestly in season one where I was like I didn't know we were going to do that because they rewrite it after the writer's wrap and I was really happy with all of it. I thought it came out great, but it was there were th there were surprises in in my episode, um, that, things that the actors improvised that were like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's fascinating to me. Yeah, you mentioned you're on hiatus, and so they get they they take it and sort of I, I assume things get sort of rewritten even on the shoot. I'm a I know little bits about film and TV and stuff like that, but I also wonder if I just assume you're on set and they say, ah, can you fix this? Can you figure uh, <laughs> the writer? They, you're saying they just do it. They just fix it or improvise. 
Well, I think that that happens on a lot of shows. A lot of shows you are on set as the writer. Um, but part of the sort of unique uh, way that this show runs is that because Bill is the star of the show and also one of the showrunners, he's in the writer's room every day. We have to finish writing before they shoot any of it. Right. He can't be on set and also in the writer's room. So what happens is we're not in production while the writers are working. So we finish everything. And then also because he's been in the writer's room the whole time, you don't need a writer on set as much as you do uh -huh. on another show because uh -huh. the star of the show is there and can work on that stuff and answer those questions. And Alec Berg is on set all, you know, the whole time too. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it runs just a, slightly differently than other scripted shows that I worked on, but okay. yeah, it, it changes a lot even after we leave. And, and part of that is because it is so truly serialized. And so if right. something changes in one episode, it kind of has to change in every episode. Right. Okay. Well, I really do appreciate your insight about this show because I marvel at it. It's really uh, wonderful. Are you working on any other shows? Um, yeah, I just, uh, I just finished work on, I'm, I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm allowed to talk about. <laughs> oh yeah. And again, like yeah. I'm trying to be sensitive to that too. I just, I, yeah, no, I, I, I just generally yeah. you're, you, you do your stand up, uh, and then you, you work on these shows. That's your life. And, and yeah. that's what, that's what you do. And I, I, yeah, if you don't, I'd be happy to hear more about what yeah, you're doing. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm developing, I'm developing my own show right now that I, I, uh, am working on for, it's a network sitcom. And so I'm working on that right now, kind of writing a pilot for that. And, uh, I, I did some work on a Netflix show that I think probably won't be coming out for a couple of years. So okay, okay. what's the point of talking about it now? But yeah, I'm, I'm sort of always working on, on something that'll come to fruition in a couple years. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's, that's totally fair. But yeah. yeah. But yeah, I've definitely been focusing more on my TV work and a little bit less on stand up recently. And part of the reason why I was so excited to put this album out is like, I really took a year off from TV work to just focus on stand up for a while. Cause it's really hard for me to do both at the same time. And so yeah. I toured for basically a whole year and recorded this album at the end of it. And now I'm sort of putting it out into the world and I haven't worked on a ton of new material since the album was recorded and so I'm sort of just focusing on TV now but I'm really excited to, for people to finally hear the album too. So, so when was the album was recorded in Portland, Oregon and you, you talk about maybe why a little bit in the uh, near the beginning of the record but when was it yeah. actually, when was it actually recorded? So it was actually recorded in January of this year so almost a full year ago. Okay. Um and there's a number of reasons why we sort of delayed putting it out but um I didn't want to wait too much longer. Um but yeah so it we recorded it in January. It's been, I've had some distance from it. And actually, like, I talk on the album about not wanting to ever get married and in the time since I got married. Oh, congratulations. Um, That's awesome. Well, thank you. I mean, it was for, uh, it was for health insurance. So it was like one of those things where I was like, I don't feel like the joke is untrue. Because in the joke, I say we're not planning on ever getting married. And I, I didn't really change my mind about the reasons behind I why I told that joke. But oh, man, you have to, you have to edit that bit. On all the digital platforms now, you got to Kanye West that thing and just. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Edit that track because uh, I I thought that was that's great. I'm 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 obviously kidding. Congratulations. That's that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah yeah yeah. So you got married. Uh, and and uh, what I was going to ask is if you recorded it almost a year ago, uh, and now you've been so busy working on all these shows. Are you where are you at material wise, uh, in terms of your stand up? Are you you had to take a year off to get to it. Uh, to get yeah. back back to it, so is it sort of 
in a dormant stage or have you been working on uh, another hour or what have you? Um, I am not working on a new hour yet. I would love to uh, start working on it soon, but right now I just, I don't have the time yeah. to really like put into it yet. Um, I, so who knows when that'll happen. I think my other work kind of needs to slow down before I get back into it and I need to set some time aside to tour and to really put the effort in, but I I don't know if I have a whole lot to say on stage right now. That's, uh, yeah, that, that, that'll that'll come. I'm sure. Knowing you, that'll come, right? I hope so. Yeah. And you are you do you still have your podcast? I do still have my podcast, Baby Geniuses, that I host with Lisa Hanawalt. Um, we've been doing it for a long time, and uh, I don't ever want to stop doing it. <laughs> and for people who haven't heard it, uh, do you want to give it a give it a little promo? We should send people to your podcast. Sure, yeah. So I've been doing this podcast for about five or six years with my friend Lisa Hanawalt. Uh, the the very loose theme is weird knowledge, um, and you know we used to have guests on it, but now we don't really have guests on it anymore, just to make it easier on both of us because we've gotten busier to schedule it. But we talk about a different strange Wikipedia page in every episode and <laughs> right. catch up on our lives. And we also have a regular segment where we talk about any news in the world of Martha Stewart's pony, Ben Chunch. <laughs> um, <Okay>. Right. <laughs> That's pretty standard for podcast segment, I, I would think. Of course. Everyone, yeah, yeah. Everyone. I know it's it's well, it's well tread ground, but, you know, we're throwing our hats in the ring to be... <laughs> Well, that's great. You're so busy. It's it's admirable, I have to say. Um, for people listening who want to learn more about you and, and your work, where would you want to send them on the uh, on the internet? I am at Mr. Emily Heller on all platforms, and you should buy my album Pasta because I think it's really good. I'm very proud of it, and um, I think uh, I think I think you'll like it. If you've listened, if you've listened this far in this podcast without turning it off, I, I can't see you not liking it's it. It's fantastic. It's really, really funny, and I, I hope do people. I mean, one of the reasons we're doing this is because I want people to hear it. It's really, really fantastic. Congratulations! Thank you so, so much. Yeah. I'm I'm so happy to talk to you about it, and you know, in general, it's been a delight. Thank you. Well, I, before we go, is there a track from Pasta that you would recommend that I play for people? That I, I usually try to play a. I often have musicians on, as you may or may not know, and, and they pick a song. But when I have comedians on and they have a record, I say, well, can you pick a, a bit or something we can go out on? Do you mind oh, picking, yeah. picking something from Pasta that we can play for people? Uh, I think you should play Posture, Stamina, Energy, both because I uh, it's one of my favorites. And also, I think we've talked about it more than the other tracks okay. <laughs> so far in this interview. So I think that that would be a good one for you to play. Seems to resonate with me as well, I suppose, somehow. Oh, yeah. good. I'm glad. <laughs> Okay, this is Posture, Stamina, Energy by Emily Heller from her wonderfully funny new album, uh, Pasta, which is out now via Kill Rockstars. Emily, this was a, a tremendous pleasure and a, an honor to get to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time and best of luck with everything. Thank you. Uh, I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> In a true sign of the apocalypse, I did join a gym this year. Um, I joined for what I think is a pretty unusual reason. I joined because at the age of 32, I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Uh, maybe soon I'll get my braces off, get my period, who knows. <laughs> but I've been reading more about it in very short spurts, and <laughs> it turns out that one of the things that's supposed to really help with ADHD is regular exercise, which was devastating news. <laughs> because I know empirically that I will not work out for the sake of my body, but... 
It turns out I will do it for my brain. Uh, <laughs> my brain is very important to me. It's where all my tweets come from. You know, my brain gives me gifts my body never has. Like, my brain gave me this the other day. It's a new theme song for the TV show Frasier, but it's set to the tune of the theme song for the TV show Friends. <laughs> Don't worry, I am going to sing it. Um, so it's like... So no one told you you were Dr. Fraser Crane. <laughs> Your job is talking on the phone to the insane. It's like you're always stuck in second cheers. Anyway, so, so you see why I need to... You see why I need to keep this machine running at 100% um, for the good of the country. Uh, so I joined a gym. My gym membership came with a free personal training session, and I was like, oh, well, that sounds like that sucks. Uh, <laughs> but I also don't know how to do anything there, so I was like, maybe I can just use that time to learn how to use the machines without bonking my head, and then I'll never have to talk to another human being at the gym for the rest of my life. So I told him that when I got there, and it was a him because I didn't get to choose. Uh, and he was like, I totally get it, but first we do need to do a questionnaire about your fitness goals. And I was like, oh, I feel like it should be clear from that last thing I said <laughs> that I do not have fitness goals. <laughs> My fitness goal was to join the gym, and I did that already, so I kind of feel like taking the rest of the year off. What I'm saying is I'm not going to do good on this quiz. Is there an SAT back there I could take? I'd rather do that right now. And he was like, no, it's not that big of a deal. All it is is you just tell me what it is that you were hoping to get out of this. And I was like, okay. Um, I guess I would like to improve my posture, my stamina, my general energy level. <laughs> and he goes, okay, great. And your goal weight? And I was like, oh, uh, not applicable. And he was like, he was like, you don't want to lose weight? And I was like, no, I do not. And he got this look on his face that told me that what he was thinking was, but I can see you. Uh, <laughs> but I wasn't trying to be snarky. I wasn't trying to cram my feminism down his throat. I'm genuinely not interested in losing weight. That's not why I was there. I used to want to do that when I was a much younger woman. And then what happened was I gained 40 pounds and then I started making a lot of money and having a lot of sex. And listen, I'm not saying the weight is why that happened, but I also don't want to jinx it. And what would I stand to gain from being skinny anyway? Just being too hungry to enjoy the money and sex? No, thank you. And he goes, okay, but what are your fitness goals? And I was like, posture, stamina, energy. And he was like, and you don't want to lose weight. And I was like, no, I do not. And he was like, but you have to be specific with me about your fitness goals. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, leg posture. Uh, but stamina, 
hand energy. Is that specific enough? I have ADHD. I really can't sit here that much longer. And he goes, okay, but like, looking in the mirror, there's nothing you want to change. I was like, I don't know, maybe the person I'm talking to right now. <laughs> and he goes, okay, let me, let me put it this way. If you lost weight, would that be okay with you? And at that point, it was clear to me that he was not going to let me leave there until I admitted to him that I was Slimer from the Ghostbusters. <laughs> so I decided to throw him a bone. I was like, okay, I'll give you this. Ever since I gained weight, I've got a bit more meat in my neck. It's made breathing a little bit more difficult from certain angles. I guess if that improved, I'd be fine with it. And he looked so relieved. He was like, okay, so we want to lose some weight. And he wrote it down and the quiz was over. Isn't that insane? I'm still so mad about it. I'm not mad at him. I'm mad at me, you know? Because I missed an opportunity to just walk in there and be like, my goal weight, this plus 500. Yeah. I want to gain 500 pounds, but... I only want to gain it from the waist up. I need my legs to stay the same size. I want to be a perfect sphere. Same size legs. What I'm saying is, I want to look like the sexy green M&M. Can you make that happen for me? I will not be happy until you can roll me out of here Willy Wonka style. And if you can't make that happen for me, I'll find a gym that can. Maybe a... Maybe a curves, maybe a curve singular, because I do just want to be the one curve. Real women have curve. Very, very, very special thanks to Emily Heller for being so awesome on this, the 447th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms and also on Spotify, YouTube, and Audio Boom as well. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and are looking for on any of those platforms, or if you want to learn more about me and uh, you know sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Vish Creative or at Vish Kana. Listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at CFRU.ca or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly pledge. Donation, I should say. It's a, it's a flexible monthly donation. And that helps keep the podcast going. Because without that, I don't... what. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, I need it. It's, it's helpful. And it's nice of you. This came out a little bit wrong. Anyway, patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to the show. Thanks again to the in-kind sponsors I have on this program. Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, all of them located in Guelph, Ontario. Beautiful city, uh, just about an hour west of Toronto if you want to stop by. It's a nice little college, university town. We like it. And oh, also, Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. They are very helpful as well. Thank you, Granddad's Donuts, 
uh, and everyone else there for your in-kind support of the show. Uh, thanks, too, to my good pal Jim Guthrie. Uh, he lets me use uh, some music of his on this show. You can learn more about Jim and hear his amazing songs and all the kinds of instrumental music that he, he makes. He does lots of things. You can learn more about that at jimguthrie.org. And finally, last but not least, thank you very much for listening to this episode and subscribing to this podcast, maybe, and listening to other episodes because there's a lot of them and some good guests, some interesting conversations. Scroll through, have a have a look-see. You might like what you see or hear, I guess. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for all of uh, your efforts to keep this show going. And uh, that's it. I will talk to you very, very soon. Goodbye for now. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.